Hey everyone, how's it going? Good? Like a rainy morning today. Um, so the, the past few weeks, we've been through this series on, on the Easter or the Passover, and we talked uh, quite a lot about Jesus' resurrection and what it means for us and for believers in general. And this week I was thinking through what I was going to speak, and as I was reading and studying through the material, uh, it reminded me of two situations that I, that I went through in my life. Uh, the first was back in high school. Uh, one of the classes that I needed to take was a speech class. It was required, it was one semester. And it was one of those classes that I would like really dread going into because I really don't like being speaking in public, which is awkward since I'm here right now. And but I remember in that class, one of the things that the teacher taught us and that stayed with me was about the introduction. She was like, you know, study, know your material really well, and after you you've done your homework then really think about your introduction. Because it, 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 it's in that, those first five minutes that your audience is going to decide whether they're going to listen to you or not. So that ended up staying with me um, for a long time. And then after a while, I ended up going to seminary. And one of the classes that I took in seminary was homiletics, or preaching class. And that class would go really well with uh, the other classes where we would study the interpretation of the text and language and how to understand that text in its original context and how to apply to our own context. And after having done all that homework, it comes the part of how do I present this? And then the professor at the seminary would say, well, one of the things that you really need to focus is also in your introduction because it is in those first five minutes that people are going to decide whether they're going to listen to you or not. And thinking about introductions, uh, our text today is an introduction. It's an introduction that Matthew does to tell Jesus' story. Now, if we go with our own modern mindset and we look at Matthew's introduction, we might think that he failed miserably in his introduction because it doesn't seem to be an appealing text with anything, with anything to teach us. So today, I would like to, for us to look at his introduction and... I'm hoping that we will notice that in texts like this, that there's apparently nothing going on, you might find some really precious things underneath the surface of the text. So I would like to invite you to open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and we are going to read verses 1 through 17. So Matthew 1, 
verses 1 through 17, and just bear with me as we read this. It starts by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashom, and Nashom the father of Salmon, which is a cool name, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and, Bo and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Ezekiah, and Ezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray today that your word may speak to us, may it reveal more of who you are, who Jesus is, that this word may encourage us, may, may this word admonish us to live better lives in accordance to who you are and who your son is. That's what I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So genealogies, you know, if you've been a, a Christian for a while, perhaps you've done those, one of those reading plans of like reading the Bible through in a whole year. And there are many reading plans available where you can do this with all sorts of sequences of texts. And I, I, I've always liked doing like from just Genesis to Revelation and just... You know, go in the sequence that it is, uh, it is there. And I remember it, it, it always starts really well because it's like, yeah, it's the story of creation. It's really nice. And then you go into Adam and Eve and it's great. And then you Cain and Abel and it goes on. And then you get to like Genesis 5 and then it's like, 
the book of the genealogy of Adam. And then it's like a whole chapter in genealogy. And, and I have to confess, like, deep inside of me, I'm like, why? It was going so well. Like, I was reading. <laughs> it was so nice. And then you just give me a hundred names. And then, but, but that's just one chapter. And then it continues. And then you get to, uh, no, I get through Genesis and I get through Exodus. And then I get to Leviticus. And then you get like, yeah, it's time to build a tabernacle. I'm like, yeah. So the curtains, they're going to be this color and it's going to be in this size and it's going to be in this way. And then the wood, it's this type of wood. And then you're going to use this to glue the wood. And it's like chapters on this. And then I have to confess and sound like, why? It's, it's difficult to get through. And... Genealogies do the same thing for me. And when I get to Matthew, I'm like, yeah, he's going to tell us the story of Jesus. And then he starts with this 17 verses on genealogy. I'm like, couldn't you have started on like verse 18? And it was like, just the story would, I think it would flow really well. <laughs> but, but that has to do with our our concept of a genealogy. Because a couple of months ago, my grandparents, they did one of those ancestry tests, you know, that you send like a, like a drop of your blood and they analyze the DNA to see where your family comes from. And like, a, like most Brazilians, we we're just a mixed bag of ethnicities. And it's like, oh yeah, you come from... Uh, you have 40% Spaniards and then 30% Portuguese and some percent like Middle Eastern and it's like all over the place. And it was interesting to look at the results. And once we look at that, we're like, oh yeah, that's cool. And yeah, that's it. There, there, there is no application to that because it's just historical curiosity for us to look at genealogies. But in ancient times, genealogies had a lot to do with your identity and with who you are. Uh, so for example, if your genealogy would trace you back to the tribe of Levi, that would mean that that tribe had responsibilities towards you and your family. And besides being part of this family and of this tribe, it would also tell us a lot about who you would be if you would be from the tribe of Levite, the likelihood of, you, of your whole life being devoted to some sort of cultic service would be pretty much spot on because you're from the tribe of Levi, and that's what they do. So it had a lot, a lot to do with identity and who, who they are. Now, if genealogies have to do with identity, and Matthew is starting Jesus' story with uh, his genealogy, then the question that, Pete, that Matthew is trying to answer is, who is Jesus? What is his identity? What, what should we look for in him? 
And it's very interesting when you, when you think about this, because th there is one, one scholar that I, I, I like to read. He's a literary critic. And his name is Seymour Chapman. He wrote this book called Story and Discourse. And there is one moment in the book where he talks about characters in stories. And he says, you know, sometimes the storyteller, he, he will present a character with certain traits or characteristics. And the whole point is that so that you can build this idea of who this character is and who he represents. And then with this, you can read through his story and see how his characteristics will attest to what he speaks or how he behaves. And it seems to me that in the genealogy of Matthew, he's doing this. He is pointing out some aspects of who Jesus is. That once we have established this, we're like, okay, now read through the story and see how this Jesus with these characteristics, how does he live out his life? How, what does he say and how does he act and how does his characteristics have to do with his actions? So... My, my idea in this sermon is to point out some of these characteristics. Well, first, if you look at genealogies in the Old Testament, uh, and the most clear example in being more closely related to Matthew is a genealogy in Genesis 5. Now, when you get to Genesis 6, you have the story of Noah. But before getting into Noah, you have this genealogy in chapter 5 where he starts saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. So he starts with Adam, and then he goes until he reaches Noah. And once he gets to Noah, then he tells his story. Because in some sense, in that framework of, in that framework of mind, you would always be defined by those in the past. So the story of Noah is essentially the story of Adam. And it builds up on Adam's story. And then when, once the reader gets to Noah, and you're like, ah, okay. So I get why this story is important, because it's, it's the story of Adam. So he, the, the genealogist had this idea of like, I'm going to show you why this person is important. And then he would go back to that character. Now, Matthew does something, he, he changes this in a very subtle way in verse 1. He begins by saying, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, if he would follow the traditional sense of doing things, he would start by saying the genealogy of Abraham or the genealogy of David. But he doesn't. He starts by saying the genealogy of Jesus. So he inverts the order. And it seems that what Matthew is trying to point out is that previously you've had all these people who were defined by those that came before them. But now you have this person who instead of being defined by those who came before him, he defines them. So he's a very interesting character, a very different. And for the reader who is used to reading genealogies, he will look at this and you say, who is this Jesus? Who is this person that 
defines everyone else that came before him. And they are not just anybody. He defines David, who was a king, and the king of the Jewish people, like a very esteemed person in their, in their culture. And he defines Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the whole Jewish society. So the question for the reader would be, who is this person that defines everyone that came before him? But he doesn't stop there. He calls Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, from a genealogical perspective, you would, you would think that, oh, yeah, that obviously his son, he's a son of David because he came from his, from his lineage. But by the first century, the, the title, Son of David, was already well established within Jewish tradition as a title for the Messiah. And you would see this in, in very ancient uh, Jewish sources like the Targums, that the title Son of David would be attributed to the Messiah. So when the reader looks at this genealogy, he says, okay, so... He is someone that defines everyone who came before him. And Matthew is attributing to him a title that is only given to the Messiah. And so for the reader, like, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And he also gives Jesus the title of son of Abraham, which in one sense, it makes sense because he was a Jew after all. He was born in, in that lineage. So he was a son of Abraham. But if you read through Genesis 12, when Abraham gets his call, his call is a very specific call because God says that he, out of the seed of Abraham, he will lift up his people. But there is a very specific goal in mind that God has so that he will bless the nations. And so it seems that Matthew is painting Jesus in a way that he is someone that defines all of those that came before him. <coughs> he receives a title that is exclusively for the Messiah. And he's identified with this mission that Abraham receives of not only being a people of God, but with an intent to bless the nations. Now, if Chapman is correct in that book about how storytellers build their characters, the question that we would have to answer is, once he established Jesus as the one who defines everyone who came before him, as one who receives titles of being a Messiah, and the one who is uh, destined to bless the nations, how do these characteristics play out in the rest of his story? Do we see this in the story? And I think Matthew is trying to paint a picture for us to pay attention to these elements as we read Jesus' story. But he's, he doesn't stop there. There's also another element in, in the genealogy which it would be very uncommon uh, in the first century. And if you were trying back then to establish someone's importance through a genealogy, you, you just wouldn't do this. 
and Matthew apparently does. It's five people that he puts in this genealogy that you wouldn't expect them to be there. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uzziah, and Mary, five women. Now, if you know first century thinking, you just wouldn't put women's names in the genealogies. Sorry. But it, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see these five women in Jesus' genealogy if we think about how Jesus, in the rest of his story, will address women. And that's going to be a point of contention in different moments in his stories as the, the leaders and the Pharisees are going to see Jesus engaging in conversation with a lot of women and he's going to place quite an importance on them. And I think the genealogy is playing uh, with this idea a little. And I think it's also important when I think about this, and I, and I always try to be very careful when I when I engage with this topic, because it seems to me that our, we are at a moment in our time where everything just tends to get very polarized, where discussions on uh, gender and equality, they tend to get very polarized. Not by everyone, we don't need to generalize, but this can happen, and sometimes you get some people that embrace that idea of saying, well, you've had your prominence, and now it's my time to have my prominence. And instead of looking for a rethinking of values, we just try to just shift the whole thing and, and go to the extreme on the other side. But when we look at Jesus' life, we have to say that his, his life and his ministry is about men, as it is also about women. And it is about women, as it is also about men. So he works with both of, both of these things. But there's also something interesting about these women, these four women that appear, not Mary, because Mary is going to come later in the story. If you look at Tamar, Tamar is actually a Canaanite, and not specifically from uh, a Jew. Rahab has, uh, lives in Jericho, if you read the book of Joshua. So she's also not a native in that sense. Ruth is a Moabite. In, in the Old Testament uh, background, the Moabites were actually one of Israel's enemy nations. And you have the wife of Uzziah, uh, Uriah, which although the text doesn't say where she comes from, we know that Uriah is a Hittite, so also not a native. So you have all of these people in the genealogy who are not natives. And this paints another picture for us to pay attention when we read through Jesus' story. How does he relate to foreigners in his story? How does he relate to the Jews? And how does he relate to the Gentiles? And that's going to be a, like a very interesting thing for you to see in his story. 
Because some people are going to look at how he treats the Samaritans and like, why are you giving them such an importance? Why are you saying they are right? Why don't you think? So when you get to like the Good Samaritan in the story, you have the guy, like a, a, a Jewish guy who was assaulted and he's beaten on the, on the road. And a priest comes and looks, sees the guy and he, he purposely walks around to not engage with that person. Then you have an, uh, another, pre, another native who looks at, at the guy falling down on the road and he also makes his way around. And then you have a Samaritan who is a foreigner in, in their concept and he's the one who helps the person. And Jesus is telling this story to, to the Pharisees. So how does Jesus view the foreigner and how does he view the native? That's, that's an important question to pay attention as you read his story. And that for me, it, it, it makes me really think about the relationship between natives and foreigners and how, uh, how we treat each other. Because I know that I was reading an article this week and about the, what cities in the world are the most multicultural and multi-diverse cities. And Amsterdam was just at the top of there. It was just, we were just very multicultural and, and very diverse. And yet, as Matt has mentioned many times here, our city also has a big problem with loneliness. Because part of being a foreigner, I don't know if it's part of it, but it's the reality for many people, is that when you move to a, a different place, it's, it's not only a matter of relocation, but it's a matter of leaving your family behind, it's a matter of leaving your friends behind, it's a matter of leaving your culture behind, which it might not seem important, but it, it can have a, quite an effect if you are going to a place where things just don't work like the way you are used to. And I know as, as foreigners, we tend to make jokes sometimes about, oh, the Dutch way of doing things, it's, it's funny. But, but, but it can get frustrating sometimes, like when I need to call to resolve something with the government and the person only speaks Dutch, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what, what do I do now? And, uh, <laughs> and there is the whole process of doing things which I'm not used to. Well, first you do this, and then you do that, and then that, and then that. And it's, it's just different. And although it might seem something small, it, te it tends to bother us sometimes. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there is also the matter of the native that he sees his home and his life change as the world becomes more globalized and diverse. And, you know, we struggle to, because it touches on our identity and who we are and so it's, it's a very complex issue. And I think that if I, when I look at Jesus' 
genealogy and having all of these people, natives as well as foreigners, it really highlights the importance of the church, for me at least, the church as the body of Christ, which is supposed to be this extended family for natives as well as for foreigners. Where, and it's a very interesting experience if you've ever lived abroad or if you're a foreigner, you're currently experiencing this right now, that when you move and you find a, a church, you have this strange feeling of feeling like I'm home. It's like a, a really strange experience. And, and then the people on this extended family end up sometimes being more closer to you than your own biological family. And I think the, the genealogy highlights this in a very interesting way of, of the church being this place where you can belong, whether you're a native or whether you're a foreigner. And I hope as a church in a city as diverse as ours that we would be willing to extend our hands as people come and go in the city, and that sometimes they feel quite lonely, they feel disconnected from everything because it's, it's such a big city and at the same time I don't know anyone and I'm in contact with so many people, but not really. So for the church to be this place where we're able to extend our hands in aid and say, come and be, be a part of us, so it's interesting to see, if you look at Jesus' story, how he will work out his relationships uh, with natives as well as with foreigners. And for the reader of that time who would be reading the story, he would say, well, so, so Jesus is this guy who defines everyone that came before him he has titles attributed to him that are of the Messiah. He has a sense of calling that his life is not only for his own, but it's for the nations, to bless the nations. His life is deeply connected uh, with men as well as with women, with powerful kings and patriarchs, as well as with carpenters. His life is connected also with natives, as well as foreigners. So for, for the Jewish thinking of the first century, this would be like a very strange Messiah, because I would be expecting someone very for my group, and he is not being for my group at all. He is just expanding, like, who is this person? And it seems that Matthew is inviting this reader to, like, just keep reading the story, and you'll see how things are going to work out. And there is one more, one more point that I would like to make that I find it, I find it fascinating. It's a, it may, may be a bit nerdy, but it's, it's still fun. Uh, the term that appears the most in this section comes from the word Genesis. So in verse 1, he starts, the book 
of the genesis of Jesus Christ. And then the word will appear again in verse 18 when he finishes the genealogy. And if you look in verse 18, it says, Now, if you were to translate in a literal sense, now the genesis of Jesus happened this way. So it seems that in this genealogy, he is building his character and he's saying, look, this is who he is. This is his genesis. Now I'm going to tell you his story. Because now you know who he is. Now I'm going to show you what happened. And talking about genesis, there is also a, a cognate word that is connected to this, which is the verb genau, uh, which is to birth, which you will see throughout the genealogy is the word that appears the whole time in the genealogy. If you look at from verse 2 until the end, Abraham was the father of. This was the father of is actually a verb. So you'll say, Abraham birthed Isaac, and Isaac birthed Jacob, and Jacob birthed Judah and his brother, and on and on and on and on. And if you look in, in, the, in the Greek, when you read this text, you'll see that it's, the phrases are like identical in sequence. So like you have like the name, and then the verb, and then the other name, and then the name, and the verb, and then the other name. So, and if you read this, this quite repetitive thing, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I see this. Yeah, and it becomes sort of like, like an automatic thing, you know, when you read, when you do something, when you do the same thing many times, it sort of becomes automatic and you just don't pay attention anymore. You're just going through the thing. And then in the end, he does something different with the verb. And if you were a reader, like a fluent reader of the Greek, you would see this repetitiveness and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he does something different. And you're like, well, it would call your attention. And I think it's purposeful. When he gets to the last person in the whole genealogy. On verse 16, he says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And this was born is the same verb as the one that appears throughout, but with a slight change. Because in the other verbs, they are, they are all, the verb is always active. That is, I birthed him. Then again, I birthed him. And again, I birthed him. And when he gets to Jesus, he says, in whom, in her, was born Jesus. It's a passive uh, verb. So he's saying, in this, in this moment, in the line, he's saying, it, it, it wasn't Mary who birthed Jesus. But it also wasn't Joseph. And he doesn't say who it was who birthed Jesus. And the reader of the genealogy, if he knew Greek, and of course he knew, he would read this like, yeah, yeah, he birthed him, he birthed him, he birthed him, yeah. And then he gets to the end like, who birthed Jesus? And I think Matthew's idea is, keep reading. And you will see that his birth is completely different from anyone's birth throughout history. So Matthew paints his Messiah as the one who defined 
everyone who came before him as the one who has titles of messianic nature, as the one who is called to his own as well as to bless the nations, as the one who his life is intrinsically linked to men and women and the powerful and the poor and the native and the foreigner. And his life, is his birth, his genesis is unlike anyone else's genesis. And when he paints this whole picture of Jesus, he's saying, this is his genesis. He gets to verse 18 and says, now I can start telling you my story, his story. And then you get to his genesis. And then you will see the way he defines everyone that came before him. You will see how he portrays elements of being the Messiah. You will see how he... His mission is to bless the nations. You will see how he will deal with men as well as with women, with the powerful as well as with the weak, and how he will deal with the native as well as with the foreigner. And you will see how his birth is unique in every sense. And it is this Jesus that we spend the last couple of weeks talking about his death. It is this Jesus who laid down his life for us, ordinary people like the people in the genealogy, to be able to bring us to his story, which is so unique. <laughs>